Good day and welcome to Giants of Legends. I am your hostess Anna Karenina. It's as hard to have a favorite sequence of myths as it is to have a favorite style of cooking with some nights you might want Thai food, some nights sushi, other nights you crave the plain home cooking you grew up on. But if I had to declare a favorite, it would probably be for the Norse myths. My first encounter with this god and its inhabitants was as a small girl, no more than seven, reading the adventures of the mighty Thor as depicted by American comics artist Jack Kirby, in stories plotted by Kirby and Stan Lee and dialogued by Stan Lee's brother, Larry Lieber. Kirby's Thor was powerful and good-looking, his Asgard a towering science-fictional city of imposing buildings and dangerous edifices, his Odin wise and noble, his Loki a sardonic horn-helmeted creature of pure mischief. I loved Kirby's blonde hammer-wielding Thor, and I wanted to learn more about him. I borrowed a copy of Myths of the Norsemen by Roger Lanceling Green and read and reread it with delight and puzzlement, Asgard, in this telling, was no longer a Kirby-esque future city, but was a Viking hall and collection of buildings out on the frozen wastes. Odin the Allfather was no longer gentle, wise, and irascible, but instead he was brilliant, unknowable, and dangerous. Thor was just as strong as the mighty Thor in the comics, his hammer as powerful, but he was, well, honestly, not the brightest of the gods, and Loki was not evil, although he was certainly not a force for good. Loki was, complicated. In addition, I learned, the Norse gods came with their own doomsday, Ragnarok, the twilight of the gods, the end of it all. The gods were going to battle the frost giants, and they were all going to die. Had Ragnarok happened yet? Was it still to happen? I did not know then. I am not certain now. It was the fact that the world and the story ends, and the way that it ends and is reborn, that made the gods and the frost giants and the rest of them tragic heroes, tragic villains. Ragnarok made the Norse world linger for me, seem strangely present and current, while other, better documented systems of belief felt as if they were part of the past, old things. The Norse myths are the myths of a chilly place, with long, long winter nights and endless summer days, myths of a people who did not entirely trust or even like their gods, although they respected and feared them. As best we can tell, the gods of Asgard came from Germany, spread into Scandinavia, and then out into the parts of the world dominated by the Vikings, into Orkney and Scotland, Ireland, and the north of England, where the invaders left places named for Thor or Odin. In English, the gods have left their names in our days of the week. You can find Tiwa the one-handed Odin's son, Odin, Thor, and Frigg, the queen of the gods, in, respectively, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. We can see the traces of older myths and older religions in the war, and the stories of the truce between the gods of the Vani and the Aesir. The Vani appear to have been nature gods, brothers and sisters, less warlike, but perhaps no less dangerous than the Aesir. 
It's very likely, or at least a workable hypothesis, that there were tribes of people who worshipped the Varni and other tribes who worshipped the Ezir, and that the Ezir worshippers invaded the lands of the Varni worshippers, and that they made compromises and accommodations. Gods of the Varni, like the sister and brother Freya and Fry, live in Asgard with the Ezir. History and religion and myth combine, and we wonder, and we imagine, and we guess, like detectives reconstructing the details of a long-forgotten crime. There are so many Norse stories we do not have, so much we do not know. All we have are some myths that have come to us in the form of folktales, in retellings, in poems, in prose. They were written down when Christianity had already displaced the worship of the Norse gods, and some of the stories we have came to us, because people were concerned that if the stories were not preserved, some of the kennings, the usages of poets that referred to events in specific myths, would become meaningless. Freya's tears, for example, was a poetic way of saying a gold. In some of the tales the Norse gods are described as men or as kings or heroes of old, so that the stories could be told in a Christian world. Some stories and poems tell of other stories, or imply other stories, that we simply do not have. It is, perhaps, as if the only tales of the gods and demigods of Greece and Rome that had survived were of the deeds of Theseus and Hercules. We have lost so much. There are many Norse goddesses, we know their names and some of their attributes and powers, but the tales, myths, and rituals have not come down to us. I wish I could retell the tales of Ear, because she was the doctor of the gods, of Lofn, the comforter, who was a Norse goddess of marriages, or of Shofn, a goddess of love. Not to mention Vor, goddess of wisdom. I can imagine stories, but I cannot tell their tales, they are lost, or buried, or forgotten. I've tried my best to retell these myths and stories as accurately as I can, and as interestingly as I can. Sometimes details in the stories contradict each other. But I hope that they paint a picture of a world and a time. As I retold these myths, I tried to imagine myself a long time ago, in the lands where these stories were first told, during the long winter nights perhaps, under the glow of the northern lights, or sitting outside in the small hours, awake in the unending daylight of midsummer, with an audience of people who wanted to know what else Thor did, and what the rainbow was, and how to live their lives, and where bad poetry comes from. I was surprised, when I finished the stories and read them as a sequence, to find that they felt like a journey, from the ice and the fire that the universe begins into the fire, and the ice that end the world. Along the way we meet people we would know if we met them, people like Loki and Thor and Odin, and people we want to know so much more about and my favorite of these is Angroda, Loki's wife among the giants, who gives birth to his monstrous children, and who is there in ghost form after Baldur is slain. I did not dare go back to the tellers of Norse myth whose work I had loved, to people like Roger Lancelin Green and Kevin Crossley Holland, and reread their stories. I spent my time instead with many different translations of Snorri Sturluson's prose Edda, 
and with the verses of the poetic Edda, words from 900 years ago, and before, picking and choosing what tales I wanted to retell, and how I wanted to tell them, blending versions of myths from the prose and from the poems. Thor's visit to Hymir, for example, the way I tell it here, is a hybrid, it begins in the poetic Edda, then adds details of Thor's fishing adventure from Snorri's version. My battered copy of A Dictionary of Northern Mythology, by Rudolf Simek, translated by Angela Hall, was always invaluable, continually consulted, eye-opening, and informative. All mistakes, conclusions jump to, and odd opinions in this volume are mine and mine alone, and I would not wish anyone else blamed for them. I hope I've retold these stories honestly, but there was still joy and creation in the telling. That's the joy of myths. The fun comes in telling them yourself, something I warmly encourage you to do, you person listening to this. Listen to the stories in this show, then make them your own, and on some dark and icy winter's evening, or on a summer night when the sun will not set, tell your friends what happened when Thor's hammer was stolen, or how Odin obtained the mead of poetry for the gods. Many gods and goddesses are named in Norse mythology. You will meet quite a few of them in these episodes. Most of the stories we have, however, concern two gods, Odin and his son Thor, and Odin's blood brother, a giant's son called Loki, who lives with the Aesir in Asgard. The highest and the oldest of all the gods is Odin. Odin knows many secrets. He gave an eye for wisdom. More than that, for knowledge of runes, and for power, he sacrificed himself to himself. He hung from the world tree, Yggdrasil, hung there for nine nights. His side was pierced by the point of a spear, which wounded him gravely. The winds clutched at him, buffeted his body as it hung. Nothing did he eat for nine days or nine nights, nothing did he drink. He was alone there in pain, the light of his life slowly going out. He was cold, in agony, and on the point of death when his sacrifice bore dark fruit, in the ecstasy of his agony he looked down, and the runes were revealed to him. He knew them and understood them and their power. The rope broke then, and he fell, screaming, from the tree. Now he understood magic. Now the world was his to control. Odin has many names. He is the Allfather, the Lord of the Slain, the Gallows God. 
He is the God of cargoes and of prisoners. He is called Grimnir and Third. He has different names in every country, for he is worshipped in different forms and in many tongues, but it is always Odin they worship. He travels from place to place in disguise to see the world as people see it. When he walks among us, he does so as a tall man, wearing a cloak and hat. He has two ravens, whom he calls Huggin and Munin, which mean thought and a memory. These birds fly back and forth across the world, seeking news and bringing Odin all the knowledge of things. They perch on his shoulders and whisper into his ears. When he sits on his high throne at Hlidskjalf, he observes all things, wherever they may be. Nothing can be hidden from him. He brought war into the world, battles are begun by throwing a spear at the hostile army, dedicating the battle, and its deaths to Odin. If you survive in battle, it is with Odin's grace, and if you fall it is because he has betrayed you. If you fall bravely in war the Valkyries, beautiful battle maidens who collect the souls of the noble dead, will take you and bring you to the hall known as Valhalla. He will be waiting for you in Valhalla, and there you will drink and fight and feast and battle, with Odin as your leader. Thor, Odin's son, is the Thunderer. He is straightforward where his father Odin is cunning, good-natured where his father is devious. Huge he is, and red-bearded, and strong, by far the strongest of all the gods. His might is increased by his belt of strength, Megingjord, when he wears it, his strength is doubled. Thor's weapon is Mjolnir, a remarkable hammer, forged for him by dwarfs. Its story you will learn. Trolls and frost giants and mountain giants all tremble when they see Mjolnir, for it has killed so many of their brothers and friends. Thor wears iron gloves, which help him to grip the hammer's shaft. Thor's mother was Jord, the Earth Goddess. Thor's sons are Modi, the Angry, and Magni, the Strong. Thor's daughter is Thrud, the Powerful. His wife is Sif, of the Golden Hair. She had a son, Allah, before she married Thor, and Thor is Allah's stepfather. Allah is a god who hunts with bow and with arrows, and he is the god with skis. Thor is the defender of Asgard and of Midgard. There are many stories about Thor and his adventures. You will encounter some of them here. Loki is very handsome. He is plausible, convincing, likable, and far and away the most wily, subtle, and shrewd of all the inhabitants of Asgard. It is a pity, then, that there is so much darkness inside him, so much anger, so much envy, so much lust. Loki is the son of Lorfi, who was also known as Nal, or Needle, because she was slim and beautiful and sharp. His father was said to be Farbauti, a giant, his name means he who strikes dangerous blows, and Farbauti was as dangerous as his name. Loki walks in the sky with shoes that fly, and he can transform his shape so he looks like other people, or change into animal form, but his real weapon is his mind. He is more cunning, subtler, 
trickier than any god or giant. Not even Odin is as cunning as Loki. Loki is Odin's blood brother. The other gods do not know when Loki came to Asgard, or how. He is Thor's friend and Thor's betrayer. He is tolerated by the gods, perhaps because his stratagems and plans save them as often as they get them into trouble. Loki makes the world more interesting, but less safe. He is the father of monsters, the author of woes, the sly god. Loki drinks too much, and he cannot guard his words or his thoughts or his deeds when he drinks. Loki and his children will be there for Ragnarok, the end of everything, and it will not be on the side of the gods of Asgard that they will fight. Next, before the beginning and after. Now back to the myth. Before the beginning there was nothing and no earth, no heavens, no stars, no sky, only the mist world, formless and shapeless, and the fire world, always burning. To the north was Nivelheim, the dark world. Here eleven poisonous rivers cut through the mist, each springing from the same well at the center of it all, the roaring maelstrom called Virgilmir. Nivelheim was colder than cold, and the murky mist that cloaked everything hung heavily. The skies were hidden by mist, and the ground was clouded by the chilly fog. To the south was Muspel. Muspel was fire. Everything there glowed and burned. Muspel was light where Nivelheim was grey, molten lava where the mist world was frozen. The land was aflame with the roaring heat of a blacksmith's fire, there was no solid earth, no sky. Nothing but sparks and spurting heat, molten rocks and burning embers. In Muspel, at the edge of the flame, where the mist burns into light, where the land ends, stood Serta, who existed before the gods. He stands there now. He holds a flaming sword, and the bubbling lava, and the freezing mist are as one to him. It is said that at Ragnarok, which is the end of the world, and only then, Serta will leave his station. He will go forth from Muspel with his flaming sword and burn the world with fire, and one by one the gods will fall before him. Between Muspel and Nivelheim was a void, an empty place of nothingness, without form. The rivers of the mist world flowed into the void, which was called Janunga Gap, the Yawning Gap. Over time beyond measure, these poisoned rivers, in the region between fire and mist, slowly solidified into huge glacier. The ice in the north of the void was covered in frozen fog and pellets of hail, but to the south, where the glacier reached the land of fire, the embers and the sparks from Muspel met the ice and warm winds from the flamelands made the air above the ice as gentle and as comfortable as a spring day. 
where the ice and the fire met the ice melted, and in the melting waters life appeared, the likeness of a person bigger than worlds, huger than any giant there will be or has ever been. This was neither male, nor was it female, but was both at the same time. This creature was the ancestor of all the giants, and it called itself Ymir. Ymir was not the only living thing to be formed by the melting of the ice, there was also a hornless cow, more enormous than the mind could hold. She licked the salty blocks of ice for food and for drink, and the milk that ran from her four udders flowed like rivers. It was this milk that nourished Ymir. The giant drank the milk, and grew. Ymir called the cow Ordhumla. The cow's pink tongue licked people from the blocks of ice, the first day only a man's hair, the second his head, and the third day the shape of a whole man was revealed. This was Buri, the ancestor of the gods. Ymir slept, and while it slept, it gave birth, a male and a female giant were born from beneath Ymir's left arm, a six-headed giant born from its legs. From these, Ymir's children, all giants are descended. Buri took a wife from among these giants, and they had a son, whom they called Bor. Bor married Bestla, daughter of a giant, and together they had three sons, Odin, Vili, and Ve. Odin and Vili and Ve, the three sons of Bor, grew into manhood. They saw as they grew, far off, the flames of Muspel, and the darkness of Nivelheim, but they knew that each place would be death to them. The brothers were trapped forever in Janungagap, the vast gap between the fire and the mist. They might as well have been nowhere. There was no sea and no sand, no grass nor rocks, no soil, no trees, no sky, no stars. There was no world, no heaven and no earth, at that time. The gap was nowhere, only an empty place waiting to be filled with life and with existence. It was time for the creation of everything. V and Vili and Odin looked at each other and spoke of what was needful to do, there in the void of Janungagat. They spoke of the universe and of life and of the future. Odin and Vili and V killed the giant Ymir. It had to be done. There was no other way to make the worlds. This was the beginning of all things, the death that made all life possible. They stabbed the great giant. Blood gushed out from Ymir's corpse in unimaginable quantities, fountains of blood as salt as the sea and grey as the oceans gushed out in a flood so sudden, so powerful, and so deep that it swept away and drowned all the giants. Only one giant, Bergelmir, Ymir's grandson, and his wife survived, by clambering onto a wooden box, which bore them like a boat. All the giants we see and we fear today are descended from them. Odin and his brothers made the soil from Ymir's flesh. Ymir's bones they piled up into mountains and cliffs. Our rocks and pebbles, the sand and gravel you see, these were Ymir's teeth, and the fragments of bones that were broken and crushed by Odin and Vili and V in their battle with Ymir. The seas that girdle the worlds, these were Ymir's blood and his sweat. 
Look up into the sky, you are looking at the inside of Ymir's skull. The stars you see at night, the planets, all the comets, and the shooting stars, these are the sparks that flew from the fires of Muspel. And the clouds you see by day. These were once Ymir's brains, and who knows what thoughts they are thinking, even now. The world is a flat disk, and the sea encircles the perimeter. Giants live at the edges of the world, beside the deepest seas. To keep the giants at bay, Odin and Vili and V made a wall from Ymir's eyelashes and set it around the middle of the world. They called the place within the wall Midgard. Midgard was empty. The lands were beautiful, but nobody walked the meadows or fished in the clear waters, nobody explored the rocky mountains or stared up at the clouds. Odin and Vili and V knew that a world is not a world until it is inhabited. They wandered high and low, looking for people, and they found nothing. At last, on the rocky shingle at the edge of the sea, they found two logs, sea-tossed, that had floated there on the tides and been cast ashore. The first log was a log of ashwood. The ash tree is resilient and handsome, and its roots go deep. Its wood carves well and will not split or crack. Ashwood makes a good tool handle or the shaft of a spear. The second log they found, beside the first on the beach, so close to the first log they were almost touching, was a log of elm wood. The elm tree is graceful, but its wood is hard enough to be made into the toughest planks and beams, you can build a fine home or a hall from elm wood. The gods took the two logs. They set the logs so they were upright on the sand, the height of people. Odin held them, and one by one he breathed life into them. No longer were they dead logs on a beach, now they were alive. Vili gave them will, he gave them intelligence and drive. Now they could move, and they could want. Vili carved the logs. He gave them the shake of people. He carved their ears, that they might hear, and their eyes, that they might see, and lips, that they might speak. The two logs stood on the beach, two naked people. V had carved one with male genitals, the other he had carved female. The three brothers made clothes for the woman and the man, to cover themselves and to keep them warm, in the chilly sea spray on the beach at the edge of the world. Last of all they gave the two people they had made names, the man they called Ask, or Ashtree, the woman they called Embla, or Elm. Ask and Embla were the father and the mother of all of us. Every human being owes its life to its parents and their parents and their parents before them. Go far enough back and the ancestors of each of us were Ask and Embla. Embla and Ask stayed in Midgard, safe behind the wall the gods had made from Ymir's eyelashes. In Midgard they would make their homes protected from giants and monsters and all the dangers that wait in the wastes. In Midgard they could raise their children in peace. That is why Odin is called the Allfather. Because he was the father of the gods and because he breathed the breath of life into our grandparents' grandparents' grandparents. Whether we are gods or mortals, 
Odin is the father of us all. I hope you enjoy Giants of Legends as much as I do. Please join me every second Friday as I delve deeper into ancient legends. Next I will be talk about Yggdrasil and the Nine Worlds. The ash tree Yggdrasil is a mighty ash tree, the most perfect and beautiful of all trees, also the largest. It grows between the nine worlds and joins them, each to each. It is the biggest of all the trees there are, and the finest. The tops of its branches are above the sky. Giants of Legends has been read and primed by me Anna Karenina.